Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey sis, welcome back to Girl Goodnight. I'm Return of Lamac, and every Sunday you can relax to binaural beats while I read you a melanated bedtime story. Tap into this show on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. All links will be in the episode description. Submit original work and future episode suggestions to girlgoodnightpodcast at gmail.com. Help your friends sleep in melanated peace. Girl, share the show and show us some love with a five-star rating and review. Tonight, we will be reading Kane, written by Gene Toomer in 1923. Kane is a body of work known as a composite novel or short story cycle. It gained this classification due to its series of vignettes ranging from narrative prose, poetry, and play-like passages of dialogue surrounding the experiences of Black Americans. It is divided into three sections. The first details the experiences of Black Americans in the Southern farmland. The second details the urban life for Black Americans in the North. The last is comprised of the prose, Cabness. The novel has been quoted as a mysterious brand of Southern psychological realism that has been matched only in the best work of William Faulkner. Now, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and sleep in melanated peace. Nello, a spray of pine needles dipped in western horizon gold fell onto a path. Dry molds of cow hoofs in the forest. Rabbits knew not of their falling, nor did the forest catch a flame. Evening Song Full moon rising on the waters of my heart Lakes and moon and fires Cloying tires Holding her lips apart Promises of slumber Leaving shore to charm the moon Miracle made vesper keeps Cloying sleeps And I'll be sleeping soon Cloying curled like the sleepy waters Where the moon waves start Radiant, resplendently she gleams, cloying dreams, lips pressed against my heart. Esther, nine. Esther's hair falls in soft curls about her high cheekbone chalk white face. Esther's hair would be beautiful if there were more gloss to it. And if her face were not prematurely serious, one would call it pretty. Her cheeks are too flat and dead for a girl of nine. Esther looks like a little white child, starched, frilled, as she walks slowly from her home toward her father's grocery store. She is about to turn in broad from Maple Street. White and black men loafing on the corner hold no interest for her. Then a strange thing happens. 
a clean muscled, magnificent black skinned Negro, whom she had heard her father mention as King Barlow, suddenly drops to his knees on a spot called the spittoon. White men, unaware of him, continue squirting tobacco juice in his direction. The saffron fluid splashes on his face. His smooth black face begins to glisten and to shine. Soon, people notice him and gather around. His eyes are rapturous upon the heavens. Lips and nostrils quiver. Barlow is in a religious trance. Town folks know it. They're not startled. They're not afraid. They gather round. Some beg boxes from the grocery stores. From Old McGregor's Notion Shop, a coffin case is pressed into use. Folks line the curbstones. Businessmen close shop. And Banker Warpley parks his car close by. Silently, all await the prophet's voice. The sheriff, a great florid fellow whose leggings never meet around his bulging calves, swears in three deputies. Why, you can't never tell what a nigga like King Barlow might be up to. Soda bottles, five fingers full of shine, are passed to those who want them. A couple of stray dogs start a fight. Old Goodloe's cow comes flopping up the street. Barlow, still as an Indian facker, has not moved. The town bell strikes six. The sun slips in behind a heavy mass of horizon cloud. The crowd is hushed and expectant. Barlow's underjaw relaxes and his lips begin to move. Jesus has been a whispering strange words deep down, away oh, down deep, deep in my ears. Hums of awe and of excitement. He called me to his side and said, Get down on your knees beside me, son. Ask gonna whisper in your ears. An old sister cries, Oh, Lord. Eyes gonna whisper in your ears, he said. And I replied, That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, Lord. Amen. Amen. And Lord Jesus whispered strange good words deep down, oh, way down deep, deep in my ears. And he said, tell him till you feel your throat on fire. I saw a vision. I saw a man arise and he was big and black and powerful. Someone yells, preach it, preacher, preach it. But his head was caught up in the clouds. And while he's a-gazing at the heavens, heart filled up with the Lord, some little white-ass bitties came and tied his feet to chains. They led him to the coast. They led him to the sea. They led him across the ocean. And they didn't set him free. The old coast didn't miss him. And the new coast wasn't free. He left the old coast, brothers to give birth to you and me. Oh, Lord, great God Almighty, to give birth to you and me. Barlow pauses. Old gray mothers are in tears. Fragments of melodies are being hummed. 
white folks are touched and curiously awed. Off to themselves, white and black preachers confer as to how best rid themselves of the vagrant, usurping fellow. Barlow looks as though he is struggling to continue. People are hushed. One can hear Weevil's work. Dusk is falling rapidly, and the customary store lights fail to throw their feeble glow across the gray dust and flagging of the Georgia town. Barlow rises to his full height. He is immense. To the people, he assumes the outline of his visioned African and the mighty voice he bellows. Brothers and sisters, turn your faces to the sweet face of the Lord and fill your hearts with glory. Open your eyes and see the dawn of the morning light. Open your ears. Years afterward, Esther was told that at that very moment, a great, heavy, rumbling voice actually was heard. The hosts of angels and of demons paraded up and down the streets all night. That King Barlow rode out of town astride a pitch black bull that had a glowing gold ring in its nose. And that old Lim Underwood, who hated niggers, woke up the next morning to find that he held a black man in his arms. That much is certain. An inspired negress of wide reputation for being sanctified drew a portrait of a black Madonna on the courthouse wall. And King Barlow left town. He left his image indelibly upon the mind of Esther. He became the starting point of the only living patterns that her mind was to know. 16. Esther begins to dream. The low evening sun sets the windows of McGregor's notion shop aflame. Esther makes believe that they really are aflame. The town fire department rushes madly down the road. It ruthlessly shoves black and white idlers to one side. It whoops. It clangs. It rescues from the second story window a dimpled infant which she claims for her own. How has she come by it? She thinks of it immaculately. It is a sin to think of it immaculately. She must dream no more. She must repent her sin. Another dream comes. There's no fire department. There are no heroic men. The fire starts. The loafers on the corner form a circle, chew their tobacco faster, and squirt juice just as fast as they can chew. Gallons on top of gallons they squirt upon the flames. The air reeks with the stench of scorched tobacco juice. Women, fat, chunky Negro women, lean, scrawny white women, pull up their skirts above their heads and display the most ludicrous underclothes. The women scoot in all directions from the danger zone. She alone is left to take the baby in her arms. But what a baby. Black, singed, woolly, tobacco juice baby ugliest sin once held to her breast miraculous thing its breath is sweet and its lips can nibble she loves it frantically her joy in it changes the town folks cheers to harmless jealousy and she is left alone 22 Esther's schooling is over she works behind the counter of her father's grocery store to keep the money in the family, so he said. 
She is learning to make distinctions between the business and the social worlds. Good business comes from remembering that the white folks don't divide the niggers, Esther. Be just as black as any man who has a silver dollar. Esther listlessly forgets that she is near white and that her father is the richest colored man in town. Black folk who drift in to buy lard and snuff and flour of her call her a sweet-natured, accommodating girl. She learns their names. She forgets them. She thinks about men. I don't appeal to them. I wonder why. She recalls an affair she had with a little fair boy while still in school. It had ended her in shame when he as much as told her that for sweetness, he preferred a lollipop. She remembers the salesman from the North who wanted to take her to the movies the first night he was in town. She refused, of course, and he never came back, having found out who she was. She thinks of Barlow. Barlow's image gives her a slightly stale thrill. She spices it by telling herself his glories. Black, magnetically so. Best cotton picker in the county, in the state, in the whole world for that matter. Best man with his fists, best man with dice, with a razor. Promoter of church benefits, of colored fairs, vagrant preacher, lover of all the women for miles and miles around. Esther decided that she loves him. And with a vague sense of life slipping by, she resolves that she will tell him so, whatever people say the next time he comes to town. After the making of this resolution, which becomes a sort of wedding cake for her to tuck beneath her pillow and go to sleep upon, she sees nothing of Barlow for five years. Her hair thins. It looks like the dull silk on puny corn ears. Her face pales until it is the color of the gray dust that dances with dead cotton leaves. Esther is 27. Esther sells lard and snuff and flour to vague black faces that drift in her store to ask for them. Her eyes hardly see the people to whom she gives change. Her body is lean and beaten. She rests listlessly against the counter, too weary to sit down. From the street, someone shouts, King Barlow has come back to town. He passes her window, driving a large new car, cut out open. He veers to the curb and steps out. Barlow has made money on cotton during the war. He is as rich as anyone. Esther suddenly is animate. She goes to her door. She sees him at a distance, the center of a group of credulous men. She hears the deep bass rumble of his talk. The sun swings low. McGregor's windows are aflame again. Pale flame. A sharply dressed white girl passes by. For a moment, Esther wishes that she might be like her. Not white, she has no need for being that, but sharp, sporty, with get-up about her. Barlow is connected with that wish. She mustn't wish. Wishes only make you restless. Emptiness is a thing that grows by being moved. I'll not think, not wish, just set my mind against it. Then the thought comes to her that those purposeless, easygoing men will possess him if she doesn't. Purpose is not dead in her, now that she comes to think of it. That loose women will have their arms around him at Nat Bowles' place tonight, 
As if her veins are full of fire, sun-bleached southern shanties, a swift heat sweeps them. Dead dreams and a forgotten resolution are carried upward by the flames. Pale flames. They shan't have him. Oh, they shall not. Not if it kills me, they shan't have him. Jerky, a flutter, she closes the store and starts home. Folks lazing on store windowsills wonder what on earth can be the matter with Jim Crane's gal as she passes them. Come to remember, she always was a little off. A little crazy, I reckon. Esther seeks her own room and locks the door. Her mind is a pink mesh bag filled with baby toes. Using the noise of the town clock striking 12 to cover the creaks of her departure, Esther slips into the quiet road. The town, her parents, most everyone is sound asleep. This fact is a staple thing that comforts her. After sundown, a chill wind came up from the west. It is still blowing, but to her is a steady, settled thing like the cold. She wants her mind to be like that. Solid, contained, and blank as a sheet of darkened ice. She will not permit herself to notice the peculiar phosphorescent glitter of the sweet gum leaves. Their movement would excite her. Exciting, too, the recession of the dull, familiar home she knows so well. She doesn't know them at all. She closes her eyes and holds them tightly. Won't do. Her being aware that they are closed recalls her purpose. She does not want to think of it. She opens them. She turns now into the deserted business street. The corrugated iron canopies and mule and horse-gnawed hitching posts bring her a strange composure. Ghosts of the commonplaces of her daily life take stride with her and become her companions. And the echoes of her heels upon the flagging are rhythmically monotonous and soothing. Crossing the street at the corner of McGregor's Notion Shop, she thinks that the windows are a dull flame only a fancy. She walks faster, then runs. A turn into a side street brings her abruptly to Nat Bull's place. The house is squat and dark. It is always dark. Barlow is within. Quietly, she opens the outside door and steps in. She passes through a small room, pauses before a flight of stairs down which people's voices muffled come. The air is heavy with fresh tobacco smoke. It makes her sick. She wants to turn back. She goes up the steps. As if she were mounting to some great height, her head spins. She is violently dizzy. Blackness rushes to her eyes. And then she finds that she is in a large room. Barlow is before her. Well, I'm surely damned. Excuse me, but what... What brought you here, little milk-white gal? You? Her voice sounds like a frightened child's that calls homeward from some point miles away. Me? Yes, you, Barlow. This ain't the place for you. This ain't the place for you. I know, I know, but I've come for you. For me? For what? She manages to look deep and straight into his eyes. He is slow at understanding. Guffaws and giggles break out from all around the room. 
a coarse woman's voice remarks, So that's how the dicty nigga does it. Laughs. Must give him credit for that gall. Esther doesn't hear. Barlow does. His faculties are jogged. She sees a smile, ugly and repulsive to her, working upward through thick liquor fumes. Barlow seems hideous. The thought comes suddenly that conception with a drunken man must be a mighty sin. She draws away, frozen. Like a somnambulist, she wheels around and walks stiffly to the stairs. Down them. Jeers and hoots pelter bluntly upon her back. She steps out. There is no air, no street, and the town has completely disappeared. Conversion African guardian of souls, drunk with rum, feasting on a strange cassava, yielding to new words and a weak palabra of a white-faced sardonic god, grins, cries, amen, shouts Hosanna. Portrait in Georgia Hair, braided chestnut coiled like a lyncher's rope, Eyes, faggots. Lips, old scars or the first red blisters. Breath, the last sweet scent of cane. And her slim body, white as the ash of the black flesh after the flame. Blood burning moon. Up from the skeleton stone walls, up from the rotting floorboards and the solid hand honed beams of oak of the pre-bore cotton factory, dust came. Up from the dusk, the full moon came. Glowing like a fired pine knot, it illumined the great door and soft-showered the Negro shanties aligned along the single street of Factory Town. The full moon in the great door was an omen. Negro women improvised songs against its spell. Louisa sang as she came over the crest of the hill from the white folks' kitchen. Her skin was the color of oak leaves on young trees in fall. Her breasts, firm and up-pointed like ripe acorns, and her singing had the low murmur of winds and fig trees. Bob Stone, younger son of the people she worked for, loved her. By the way the world reckons things, he had won her. By measure of that warm glow which came into her mind at the thought of him, he had won her. Tom Burwell, who the whole town called Big Boy, also loved her but working in the fields all day and far away from her gave him no chance to show it. Though often enough of evenings he had tried to, somehow he never got along. Strong as he was with his hands upon the axe or plow, he found it difficult to hold her, or so he thought. But the fact was that he held her to factory town more firmly than he thought for her. His black balanced and pulled against the white of stone when she thought of them and her mind was vaguely upon them as she came over the crest of the hill coming from the white folks' kitchen. As she sang softly at the evil face of the full moon, a strange stir was in her. Indolently, she tried to fix upon Bob or Tom as the cause of it. As she was going to do an hour or so later was nothing new. And Tom's proposal, which she felt on its way to her, could be indefinitely put off. Separately, 
There was no unusual significance to either one, but for some reason, they jumbled when her eyes gazed vacantly at the rising moon. And from the jumble came the stir that was strangely within her. Her lips trembled. The slow rhythm of her song grew agitant and restless. Rusty black and tan spotted hounds lying in the dark corners of porches or prowling around backyards put their noses in the air and caught its tremor. They began plaintively to yelp and howl. Chickens woke up and cackled. Intermittently, all over the countryside, dogs barked and roosters crowed as if heralding a weird dawn or some ungodly awakening. The women sang lustily. Their songs were cotton wads to stop their ears. Louisa came down into factory town and sank wearily upon the step before her home. The moon was rising towards a thick cloud bank, which soon would hide it. Red nigger moon, sinner. Blood burning moon, sinner. Come out that factory door. Up from the deep dusk of a cleared spot on the edge of the forest, a mellow glow arose and spread fanwise into the low-hanging heavens. And all around the air was heavy with the scent of boiling cane. A large pile of cane stalks lay like ribbon shadows upon the ground. A mule harnessed to a pole trudged lazily round and round the pivot of the grinder. Beneath a swaying oil lamp, a Negro alternately whipped out at the mule and fed cane stalks to the grinder. A fat boy waddled pails of fresh ground juice between the grinder and the boiling stove. Steam came from the copper boiling pan. The scent of cane came from the copper pan and drenched the forest in the hill that sloped to factory town beneath its fragrance. It drenched the men in circles seated around the stove. Some of them chewed at the white pulps of stalks, but there was no need for them to if all they wanted was to taste the cane. One tasted it in factory town. And from factory town, one could see the soft haze thrown by the glowing stove upon the low-hanging heavens. Old David Georgia stirred the thickening syrup with a long ladle and ever so often drew it off. Old David Georgia tended his stove and told tales about the white folks, about moonshining and cotton picking, and about sweet nigger gals to the men who sat there about his stove to listen to him. Tom Burwell chewed cane stalk and laughed with the others till someone mentioned Louisa. Till someone said something about Louisa and Bob Stone, about the silk stockings she must have gotten from him. Blood ran up Tom's neck hotter than the glow that flooded from the stove. He sprang up, glared at the men and said, She's my gal. Will Manning laughed. Tom strode over to him, yanked him up, and knocked him to the ground. Several of Manning's friends got up to fight for him. Tom whipped out a long knife and would have cut them to shreds if they hadn't ducked into the woods. Tom had had enough. He nodded to old David Georgia and swung down the path to Factory Town. Just then, the dogs started barking and the roosters began to crow. Tom felt funny. Away from the fight, away from the stove, chill got to him. He shivered. He shuddered when he saw the full moon rising toward the cloud bank. He who didn't give a goddamn for the fears of old women... 
he forced his mind to fasten on Louisa. Bob Stone? Better not be. He turned into the street and saw Louisa sitting before her home. He went towards her, ambling, touched the brim of a marvelously shaped spotted felt hat, said he wanted to say something to her, and then found that he didn't know what he had to say, or if he did, that he couldn't say it. He shoved his big fist in his overalls and grinned and started to move off. You all want me, Tom? That's what us want show, Louisa. Well, here I am. And here I is, but that ain't helping none all the same. You wanted to say something? I did that, show. But the words is like spots on dice. No matter how you fumbles on them, there's times when it just won't come. I don't know why. Seems like the love I feels for you done stole my tongue. I got it now. Whew! Louisa? Honey, I tell you. I feel I tell you because you're so young and goes to church and I has had other gals. But, Louisa, I sure do love you. Look, gal, I was watching from the first days when you sat right here before your door, before the well, and sang sometimes in a way that like to broke my heart. I a carried you with me in the fields day after day and after that, and I show can plow when you's there, and I can pick cotton. Yes, sir. Come near beating Barlow yesterday. I show did. Yes, sir. And next year, if Stone will trust me, I have a farm. My own. My bells will buy you what you get from white folks now. Silk stockings and purple dresses. Course, I don't believe what some folks been whispering as to how you get some things now. White folks always did do for niggas what they likes. And and they just can't help but liking you, Lisa. Bob Stone likes you. Course he does. But not the way folks is a whispering. Does he, hon? I don't know what you mean, Tom. Course you don't. Eyes already cut two niggas. Had to, hon. Had to tell him so. Niggas always trying to make something out of nothing. And then, besides... White folks ain't up to them tricks so much nowadays. Goddamn better not be. Least of wise not with you. Cause I wouldn't stand for it. No, sir. What would you do, Tom? Cut him. Just like I cut a nigga. No, Tom. I said I would, and there ain't no more to it. But that ain't the talk for now. Sing, honey, Louisa. And while I'm listening to you, I'll be making love. Tom took her hand in his. Against the tough thickness of his own, hers felt soft and small. His huge body slipped down to the step beside her. The full moon sank upward into the deep purple of the cloud bank. An old woman brought a lighted lamp and hung it on the common well, whose bulky shadow squatted in the middle of the road opposite Tom and Louisa. The old woman lifted the well lid, took hold the chain, and began drawing up the heavy bucket. As she did so, she sang. Figures shifted, restless-like, between the lamp and window of the front rooms of the shanties. Shadows of the figures fought each other on the gray dust of the road. Figures raised the windows and joined the old woman in song. Louisa and Tom, the whole street, singing. Red nigger moon, sinner. Blood-burning moon, sinner. Come out that factory door. 
Bob Stone sauntered from his veranda out into the gloom of the fir trees and magnolias. The clear white of his skin paled and the flush of his cheeks turned purple. As if to balance this outer change, his mind became consciously a white man's. He passed the house with its huge open hearth, which in the days of slavery was the plantation cookery. He saw Louisa bent over that hearth. He went in as a master should and took her. Direct, honest, bold. None of this sneaking that he had to go through now. The contrast was repulsive to him. His family had lost ground. Hell no, his family still owned the niggers practically. Damned if they did, or he wouldn't have to duck around so. What would they think if they knew? His mother? His sister? He shouldn't mention them, shouldn't think of them in this connection. There in the dusk, he blushed at doing so. Fellows about the town were all right. But how about his friends up north? He could see them incredible, repulsed. They didn't know. The thought first made him laugh. Then, with their eyes still upon him, he began to feel embarrassed. He felt the need of explaining things to them. Explain? Hell, they wouldn't understand. And moreover, whoever heard of a Southerner getting on his knees to any Yankee or anyone? No, sir. He was going to see Louisa tonight and love her. She was lovely in her way. Nigger way. What way was that? Damned if he knew. Must know. He'd known her long enough to know. Was there something about niggers that you couldn't know? Listening to them at church didn't tell you anything. Looking at them didn't tell you anything. Talking to them didn't tell you anything. Unless it was gossip. Unless they wanted to talk. Of course, about farming and liquor and crabs. But those weren't nigger. Nigger was something more. How much more? Something to be afraid of more? Hell no. Who ever heard of being afraid of a nigger? Tom Burwell. Cartwell had told him that Tom went with Louisa after she reached home. No, sir. No nigger had ever been with his girl. He'd like to see one try. Some position for him to be in. Him, Bob Stone, of the old Stone family, in a scrap with a nigger over a nigger girl? In the good old days, ha! Those were the days. His family had lost ground. Not so much, though. Enough for him to have cut through old Lemon's cane field by way of the woods that he might meet her. She was worth it. Beautiful nigger gal. Why nigger? Why not just gal? No, it was because she was a nigger that he went to her. Sweet. The scent of boiling cane came to him. Then he saw the rich glow of the stove. He heard the voices of the men circled around it. He was about to skirt the clearing when he heard his own name mentioned. He stopped, quivering. Leaning against a tree, he listened. Bad nigger. Yes, sir. Show is one bad nigger when he gets started. Tom Burwell's been on the game three times for cutting men. What you think he gonna do to Bob Stone? Don't know yet. He ain't found out. When he does, baby, ain't no telling. Young Stone ain't no quitter, and I can tell you that. Blood of the old'uns in his veins. That's right. 
He'll scrap for show. Be getting too hot for niggas round this way. Shut up, nigga. You don't know what you talking about. Bob Stone's ears burned as though he had been holding them over the stove. Sizzling heat welled up within him. His feet felt as if they rested on red-hot coals. They stung him to quick movement. He circled the fringe of the glowing. Not a twig cracked beneath his feet. He reached the path that led to Factory Town, plunged furiously down it. Halfway along, a blindness within him veered him aside. He crashed into the bordering cane break. Cane leaves cut his face and lips. He tasted blood. He threw himself down and dug his fingers in the ground. The earth was cool. Cane roots took the fever from his hands. After a long while, or so it seemed to him, the thought came to him that it must be time to see Louisa. He got to his feet and walked calmly to their meeting place. No Louisa. Tom Burwell had her. Veins in his forehead bulged and distended. Saliva moistened the dry blood on his lips. He bit down on his lips. He tasted blood. Not his own blood, Tom Burwell's blood. Bob drove through the cane and out again upon the road. A hound swung down the path before him towards Factory Town. Bob couldn't see it. The dog loped aside to let him pass. Bob's blind rushing made him stumble over it. He fell with a thud that dazed him. The hound yelped. Answering yelps came from all over the countryside. Chickens cackled, roosters crowed, heralding the bloodshot eyes of Southern Awakening. Singers in the town were silenced. They shut their windows down. Palpitant between the rooster crows, a chill hush settled upon the huddled forms of Tom and Louisa. A figure rushed from the shadow and stood before them. Tom popped to his feet. What you want? I'm Bob Stone. Yes, sir. And I'm Tom Burwell. What you want? Bob lunged at him. Tom sidestepped, caught him by the shoulder, and flung him to the ground. Straddled him. Let me up. Yes, sir. But watch your doings, Bob Stone. A few dark figures drawn by the sound of scuffles stood about them. Bob sprang to his feet. Fight like a man, Tom Burwell, and I'll lick you. And again, he lunged. Tom sidestepped and flung him to the ground. Straddled him. Get off me, you goddamn nigger, you. You show sure has starting something now. Get up. Tom yanked him up and began hammering at him. Each blow sounded as if it smashed into a precious, irreplaceable, soft something. Beneath them, Bob staggered back. He reached in his pocket and whipped out a knife. That's my game, show. Blue flash. A steel blade slashed across Bob Stone's throat. He had a Swedish sick feeling. Blood began to flow. Then he felt a sharp twitch of pain. He let his knife drop. He slapped one hand against his neck. He pressed the other on top of his head as if to hold it down. He groaned. He turned and he staggered toward the crest of the hill in the direction of White Town. Negroes who had seen the fight slunk into their homes and blew the lamps out. Louisa, dazed, hysterical, refused to go indoors. She slipped, crumbled, 
Her body loosely propped against the woodwork of the well. Tom Burwell leaned against it. He seemed rooted there. Bob reached Broad Street. White men rushed up to him. He collapsed in their arms. Tom Burwell. White men like ants upon a forge rushed about. Except for the taunt hum of their moving, all was silent. Shotguns, revolvers, rope, kerosene, torches. Two high-powered cars with glaring searchlights. They came together. The taut hum rose to a low roar. Then, nothing could be heard but the flop of their feet in the thick dust of the road. The moving body of their silence preceded them over the crest of the hill into Factory Town. It flattened the Negroes beneath it. It rolled to the wall of the factory where it stopped. Tom knew that they were coming. He couldn't move. And then he saw the searchlights of the two cars glaring down on him. A quick shock went through him. He stiffened. He started to run. A yell went up from the mob. Tom wheeled about and faced them. They poured down on him. They swarmed. A large man with dead white face and flabby cheeks came to him and almost jabbed a gun barrel through his guts. Hands behind you, nigga. Tom's wrists were bound. The big man shoved him to the well. Burn him over it, and when the woodwork caved in, his body would drop to the bottom. Two deaths for a goddamn nigger. Louisa was driven back. The mob pushed in. Its pressure... Its momentum was too great. Drag him to the factory. Wood and stakes already there. Tom moved in the direction indicated, but they had to drag him. They reached the great door. Too many to get in there. The mob divided and flowed around the walls to either side. The big man shoved him through the door. The mob pressed him from the sides, taut humming. No words. A stake was sunk into the ground. Rotting floorboards piled around it. Kerosene poured on the rotting floorboards. Tom bound to the stake. His breast was bare. Nail scratches let little lines of blood trickle down and mat into the hair. His face, his eyes were set and stony. Except for irregular breathing, one would have thought him already dead. Torches were flung onto the pile. A great flare muffled in black smoke shot upward. The mob yelled. The mob was silent. Now, Tom could be seen within flames. Only his head, erect, lean like a blackened stone. Stench of burning flesh soaked the air. Tom's eyes popped. His head settled downward. The mob yelled. Its yell echoed against the skeleton stone walls and sounded like a hundred yells like a hundred mobs yelling. Its yell thudded against the thick front wall and fell back. Ghost of a yell slipped through the flames and out the great door of the factory. It fluttered like a dying thing down the single street of factory town. Louisa, upon the step before her home, did not hear it, but her eyes opened slowly. They saw the full moon glowing in the great door. The full moon an evil thing, an omen, soft-showering the homes of folks she knew. Where were they, these people? She'd sing, 
and perhaps they'd come out and join her. Perhaps Tom Burwell would come. At any rate, the full moon in the great door was an omen which she must sing to. Red nigger moon, sinner. Blood burning moon, sinner. Come out that factory door. Are you still up? Girl, good night. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.